Good morning. My name is Alex, and I serve as senior minister here at Knox. How often do you experience something incredible or amazing? I think most of us go through the week with our routines, and usually it's the same as it ever was. Most of the time, we don't expect much. The Toronto Maple Leafs were playing the Columbus Blue Jackets on Thursday. Columbus is one of the worst teams in the league. The Leafs are one of the best. And yet, the Leafs were losing 5-0 at the end of the second period. Apparently, many people left. Our worship pastor, Tamika, was there. She left before the end of the first period. (laughs) She does not share the same love as I have for the Leafs. I got a message from a friend of mine at the end of the second period saying it would take a complete miracle for the Leafs to come back and win the game. The third period started. 30 seconds later, the Leafs put the puck in the net. Three minutes later, another goal. They scored again with five minutes remaining. Still, the clock was ticking. With 90 seconds left in the game, it seemed impossible to score two more goals. But Austin Matthews did it anyway. It was incredible. It was amazing. There was a lot of joy in Leafland until they lost the game in overtime. (laughs) Still, five goals in one period is a rare event, but not as amazing as the 1972 Pittsburgh Penguins who scored five goals in two minutes and seven seconds. Those of us who love sports know the thrill of the unexpected and unbelievable. But we also know it will not change the world. It will likely end up as a footnote in the record book that no one will remember. Here in Luke chapter 1, the most incredible, amazing thing is happening. But this is going to change the world. This is going to turn everything upside down. This is the miracle at the heart of Christian faith. Whether this story is familiar to you or not, the uniqueness of what's so amazing here sneaks up on us in two verses we read, in two references to the Lord. First, in verse 32, the angel tells Mary that her son will be called the Son of the Most High, and that the Lord God will give him the throne of his forefather David, and he will reign over God's chosen people forever. His kingdom will never end. The Lord God will do this. And it's clearly only the Lord, the Most High, the creator of the universe, who could do this, especially that part about his kingdom never ending. Lots of empires have boasted that way over history. The Romans called their rule an eternal glory and set up their emperors as gods to be worshipped. But then a bunch of unsophisticated barbarians called the Visigoths sacked Rome in the year 410. More recently, it was said that the sun would never set on the Spanish Empire and then on the British Empire, except the sun did set on them. They're long gone. All of these kingdoms had one thing in common. They came and went. They ended. Only God can deliver a never-ending kingdom. The second reference 
to the same word, Lord, shows up in verse 43. Mary goes to see her cousin Elizabeth, who asks her, But why am I so favored that the, the mother of my Lord should come to me? It's this sneaky little nod to the most amazing news, these glad tidings of great joy that we celebrate this time of year. If Mary is the mother of the Lord, as Elizabeth is saying here, then the baby that's about to be conceived in her womb really is the Lord Most High. And how is that possible? Only by God's initiative. That first Christmas, the supernatural became natural. The infinite became finite. The immortal became mortal. The omnipotent became impotent. The creator of the universe entered the world in a human cell, the weakest and smallest version of human life there is. And so what was invulnerable became completely vulnerable. What seemed impossible came to pass. The order of the things in the world had changed. And we were never the same again. It's amazing. It's unbelievable. But Elizabeth asks Mary if she believes it. In verse 45, she says to Mary, Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. She's saying to Mary that if you trust in God and accept the truth of this impossible thing, then you are going to be blessed. This word blessed or blessing isn't a word you hear very often anymore, unless you spend a fair bit of time in church. It's a word that doesn't seem to mean much when people trot it out. Sometimes all it takes is a sneeze, right? We say, bless you. But in the Bible, to have the Lord's blessing means so much more. It means to be in God's presence. It means to receive his peace, his healing, his wholeness, to be everything God created you to be. It means to be utterly transformed. But here's the question, not just for Mary, but for every one of us. Do you believe that Jesus was born in history as the Son of the Most High? Do you believe that it really happened and that it was what Luke claims it to be? If you do, and if you put it at the center of your life and allow that reality to shape you by God's grace, then you will be changed. You will be blessed. As we try to grasp the meaning of Christmas, we're going to look at three things in our text. First of all, we see God's vulnerability. Second, Mary's perplexity. And third, Elizabeth's encouragement. First, let's talk about vulnerability. I have a friend who's a therapist, and he does a lot of counseling with people in conflict. And as he works through issues, sometimes between a parent and a child or within a marriage, he sometimes has to deal with a back-and-forth conversation as things come out. And it sounds like this. No, no. This is all your fault. No, it's your fault. No, you are clearly the one who's to blame here. No, I'm not to blame. You are to blame. Oh, no, it's you. No, it's you. And you can imagine this going on for a long time. 
I think all of us have experienced that. That back and forth, that loop, that cycle, signifies that the relationship is falling apart because neither side will admit to their wrongdoing. Neither one will take the blame. And it's only human nature, right? You defend yourself, you fight back as the other person accuses you. But once in a while, although it's rare, my friend tells me that he has a session in which something amazing happens. The blaming stops. One person says, okay, okay, you're right. It is me. I'm responsible. And then the script changes. At first, the person who has taken the blame gets even more blame. But at the same time, imperceptibly, and yet immediately, the relationship shifts. It starts to heal, or at least it stops deteriorating. And later on, restoration may be possible. And it only happened because someone let down their defenses. But there's a risk when you make yourself vulnerable like that in a situation with conflict. So why would you do that? Why would you take a risk like that? Because in the midst of all the anger, of all the blaming, of all the conflict, one person decides, I want you back. I don't want to lose you. I love you. And the only way to make good on that is to lower your defenses and to take it. You say, yes, I'm wrong and I'm sorry. You make yourself vulnerable and it's going to cost you something. What you're doing essentially is you're trying to redeem the relationship. Why does that work? Because you and I were made in the image of God who let all his defenses down by entering the world as a baby that first Christmas. C.S. Lewis says it best in his book, The Four Loves. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket of selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. There's no way to have a loving relationship without becoming vulnerable, and you will get hurt in the process. Of all the world religions, only Christianity says that God made himself weak and came among us in vulnerability. Why? Why would he do that? Simply to get us back. To get you back. The Lord became breakable and his body was broken for us. For our sins, he died at the cross. And by doing that, he shows us that most of all, he wants to renew his relationship with us. If we will admit that we need him, that we can't make it alone in this life, we cannot thrive without his help.
the God on high, the God of the whole universe, the God of never-ending power and glory, made himself nothing so he could get close to us, so he could restore our relationship with him, with each other, and put things right in the world. He took that initiative because he loves us. If you understand that, if you believe in what lies at the heart of Christmas, you will be blessed by closeness to God. And that will spread out in your family, in your community, and beyond. So how do we receive this? How do we experience this practically? Well, look at what Mary did. We've explored God's vulnerability. Let's talk about Mary's perplexity because it comes through pretty clearly. The angel says, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary doesn't say what you might expect in response. She doesn't say, wow, thank you. I am so blessed. What an honor. This is great. No, she is troubled and she wonders. Mary's asking herself, is this a dream? Is this actually happening? Or did I maybe eat some bad falafel? What is going on here? She's reacting exactly the way I expect you would react. She is highly skeptical. Maybe you read the Bible and assume that people back then were, were superstitious or that they found it easier than we do to believe in things like miracles because we're scientific people and so on. But look at Mary. She is not on board with what the angel's suggesting. She's struggling to explain it. This does not fit into her worldview at all. She was Jewish and no Jew would ever have believed that God would come as a human and that we would worship him. For Jews, God was holy and transcendent. He was a consuming fire. They wouldn't even write God's name down. So where did this idea come from then? Not from Mary, not from Jewish culture, nor from the dominant culture in the Mediterranean at that time. Because Greek and, Jew and, Greek and Roman philosophy viewed physical material existence as inferior. There was no way that divine truth would have become flesh. And Mary's perplexity here is honest. She asks, how will this be? Then she asks, she asks herself, what comes next? If you were starting a new religion, imagine you were one of the authors of the Gospels, would you describe its first and greatest believer that way? As weighed down by doubt, as perplexed, confused. No, if you were writing the Gospels, Mary would glow with immediate and exemplary faith, right? That's how you do it. But here, no, she's troubled and she wonders. And that would not be mentioned here if God did not welcome that kind of questioning and meet us in our doubt and skepticism. So if you're here in that place of doubt, in that place of wondering, God invites you in, and we want to also at Knox. The third thing we find in this passage we've read is Elizabeth's encouragement. Mary absolutely needs to figure this out in community. She isn't going to be able to do it on her own. The angel says two things to her. First of all, nothing is impossible with God. The angel also says, go see Elizabeth. Mary is still perplexed, but later in this chapter, she will sing a song of praise 
But first, she has to go and see her friend Elizabeth. If you're here today facing some kind of adversity or struggling with a difficult circumstance in your life, the Bible is clear that you will receive the gift of faith as you put yourself on that path of encouragement. You can't slip in and slip out on Sundays and hope that God will encourage you the way he wants to through others. And the New Testament says that that encouragement happens most of all in the local church. That's where these relationships grow. In our community, in our congregation, we want to respond to God's vulnerability in Jesus. And we do that by offering hospitality to all and by pursuing reconciliation within and without in the city and beyond. Not long before the pandemic, I started walking with my friend Pete every Friday for an hour or two along the Speed River in Guelph. I don't remember who it was that suggested we do that, that we do it every week. It was a risk, though, because our friendship wasn't that deep when we began walking together. But it became a blessing like I can't imagine I would have been able to get through COVID without my friendship with Pete. And I think as I was preparing the sermon, it occurred to me that angels were orchestrating that friendship. Do you ever feel that way about someone in your life? Someone maybe you've just met and you instantly feel this connection with? We all need friends who will offer insightful and even powerful encouragement. In verse 41, it says that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you have a friend in your life who has encouraged you with a word from the Holy Spirit? Maybe they haven't described it that way, but they've shared something that they see in you. They've affirmed you. They've used the words of Scripture to encourage you. Who are you doing that for today? And from whom are you receiving that? If you're here exploring spirituality and faith, that might be the very first prayer you pray. God, give me a sign like Elizabeth. But there's one more thing. Maybe it's the most important thing of all. And that is surrender. Mary says, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your will. Now, in this case, the parents were not allowed to name their child. The angel says, you will give him the name Jesus. Usually, that's one of the fun things about being a new parent, right? That's something kind of delightful that comes with having a baby. You get to choose a name for your kid. You're older and you are in charge. You may have lost control of your life in countless other ways. You may not be getting any sleep, but at least you get to decide your child's name. But Jesus was the first person ever born who was older than his parents. And this is what the angel was trying to get through to us, was trying to say when he told Mary, you don't get to name him. He was saying, you don't watch over this baby. He watches over you. He's the one in authority. Maybe you are wondering about Christian faith, but you don't believe yet. Or maybe you consider yourself to be a Christian, but you know when it comes down to it, really you're living for yourself most of the time. 
If that's your situation, I've got good news for you this morning. Faith comes only as a gift from the Holy Spirit, and it always comes in response to the most simple request. Are you willing, no matter what your circumstance, to ask for more faith? As you start to see that God has made himself vulnerable for you, that he's given himself away for you completely, that he meets you always in your doubt and disbelief, and that he wants to encourage you, you begin to see that you can trust him. The meaning of Christmas is that God has come down and come close, and he's inviting us into a new relationship with him. He asks us to surrender our pride and our privilege and to trust him. Will you believe in his promise that he is enough, that his grace is sufficient, and that nothing can ever separate you from his love? God doesn't wait for us to get it right. He takes us more seriously than we take ourselves. He loves us so much that he takes the initiative. He gives everything up to pursue us. Why would he do that? Because he wants us to have all of his goodness. He wants to bless us. He wants the very best for every one of us. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, we ask you to help us to grow in our faith that your loving vulnerability come down at Christmas is the most trustworthy reality in the world. Would you give us a sign like Elizabeth? Bring someone into our lives, someone who we could encourage or someone from whom you have encouragement in store for us. Guide us in taking initiative, especially at this time of year when we turn in on ourselves towards new friendship, in offering hospitality, and in pursuing reconciliation. Lord, as we think about making ourselves vulnerable, we pray especially today for those who are in broken relationships. Lord, give us wisdom. Sometimes it's not right wise, good to take the blame. We pray that for people in that circumstance that you would provide them with a supportive community, with friends, family who can advise them, with a good therapist, perhaps. We pray that you would deliver anyone here today from being caught in a relationship where they are condemned, where they are being hurt. At the same time, Lord, we know for many of us that, that we refuse to even say sorry. We ask that you would enable us to reflect your, your vulnerability individually in our families. Give us the humility that opens doors. Show us how we as a church can be like that. We thank you for the stories Matt told us about Move In and the way that you call us and send us out to take risks, to be open to others, to go to places that maybe aren't comfortable. Lord, we pray that you would come alongside us in this season, especially if we're dealing with grief. We pray for those who are sick, that you would heal them, that you 
would comfort them. We pray that you would enter into our homes and change us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.